0: So I made the decision to go Smart Casual. Thank you. Thank you, Music. Hello and welcome to another episode of Smart Casual with me, Jeff Innocent. We have something a bit different for you today. Now, as some of you may know, I have a deep love and long-lasting appreciation for Jamaican music. So our guest today is Lloyd Bradley author of what is considered the definitive book on the history of Jamaican music in Britain, entitled Bass Culture When Reggae Was King. And I totally recommend this book to anyone wanting to learn about the music and black British history in general. We spoke about a number of things, including how Lloyd stumbled into a job as a music writer, the political side of reggae music, and the idea of Bob Marley as an icon the history of Jamaican sound systems and dancehall culture and how that influenced British musical genres such as drum and bass and grime. It was a totally fascinating discussion. So I hope you enjoy Smart Casual with me, Jeff Innocent and Lloyd Bradley. Thanks for coming in and I'm hoping that the poetry of our location is not lost on you. Dalston, very much in the eye of the storm, in the context of the story contained in your book. Indeed, the entrance and exit to Dalston Junction Station is, is located exactly where the entrance and exit to the old Four Aces nightclub, which is very much part of that story. I don't know if that's a club that you've frequented. Uh, as not a that man. often, but what I
1: did do was... Uh, I've been to several parties at the estate just over the road from here, the, uh, at Kingsland Road, Kingsland Road Estate, I think okay. it's called. Yeah, I've been...
0: And did did that evoke memories when you got out the train and thought, yeah, this place... Have you been here for a while or, or not?
1: I, I, come, I shop in Ridley oh, Road okay.
0: Market, so but okay. I mean, I
1: can't remember going to the Dawson Estate in daylight, so therefore I didn't really <laughs> have a clue what it looked
0: like. <laughs> totally. Um, now, uh, Lloyd, can we go back to your beginning and talk about when and where your interest in music began and how that developed? I can't ever remember
1: not being aware of music. It was always there. Um, Mostly, when I was a kid, probably pop music. Mm -hmm. I mean, my old man used to listen to a fair amount of jazz Mm -hmm. um, and classical music. And because when I was young... Pop music was still new, like the Beatles were new, um, the Rolling Stones were new, the Top of the Pops was new, It was um, Radio Luxembourg and things like that were new, it was all really exciting, I mean, I was born in 55, so by the time I was like, you know, 11, 12, it was, it was going, you know, sure. like, and it was just something that people older than me were excited about, so... Naturally, as a little kid, you used to get excited about it. And and that was it. I just
0: can't remember
1: it not being there.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I I had the very same childhood, actually. And recently, I found in a cupboard a huge box of records that were the records we had in our house Mm. as a child. And I, I don't remember when my mum gave them to me. Um, I think she went digital, my mum, at some point, and gave me all these uh, all these records. But it was all pop music, yeah. and it charted. Mm. It charted the sixties, and there were one or two reggae records in there. What you said was interesting. It was it was all pop music. Yeah. It was
1: you. Could, I mean, I suppose when I was young, I couldn't really tell the difference. I mean, it's like I remember top of the pops being exciting when I was a little kid, um, and sometimes like you know, they'd have the occasional black act on them, and it might be Desmond Decker, it might be The Temptations, it, you know, and you sort of didn't care. They were, it was all exciting, and it was even more exciting if you saw a black act on there.
0: But but, I, I mean, for me in, what, 68, 69, there was a definite um, uh, uh, realisation or, or a discovery of Jamaican music. Was that a thing that... That happened to you or, or your interest in Jamaican music? When did that start? If when you were a child, you were listening to pop music and probably Probably. Uh,
1: I would say, yeah, around the same time, 68, okay. 69. Probably the time when I first started to go to, you know, kind of youth club dances or okay. church hall dances. And I remember the YMCA at, uh, in Hornsey had um used to have uh dances on from time to time you know and i think once you start going out by yourself Mm -hmm. so what you're consuming isn't coming at you through the television and Mm -hmm. this was this was probably in the days before radio one it was still the light program then i think you know (laughs) and you had to get pop music from radio luxembourg or what was then the pirate ship radio london or, or there was um yeah, it was Radio Lon- Radio Caroline, that okay. was it. And there was a Radio London pirate. My older brother used to listen to all of that. And okay. um, so I think it was only when I started to go out that, you know, that would have been about... If I was born in 55, that would have been 69,
0: 70. Mm, sure. Yeah. Was it... When I started buying Jamaican music, it was a definite shift from the box of records that my mum left me it wasn't something that my parents were involved in it felt different it felt like mine it felt like a I was having my own it was away from that generational dominance of popular music did that happen with you at home did you no
1: it wasn't an intergenerational thing it was an in-generational thing because uh, my brother my older brother was a hippie and um he was really into rock music so um we shared a bedroom for years you know so uh, he was obviously he was buying records quite a long time before I was so uh, you know essentially I grew up um, uh, at home and he controlled the stereo because it was his stereo <laughs> right and um, you know so I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and Cream and Pink Floyd and stuff <laughs> like that that was being played you know okay then, then when I started going out it was um I thought you know the hippie raves well they were, they didn't appeal to me at all so I used to go to other dances, clubs, and that, you know, and uh, that's where I suppose I discovered black music mm-hmm. away from what was being played on Radio Luxembourg or used to make it onto top of the pop. So,
0: and where were you living at the time? Is it in London? Longsy, yeah, North, North London, yeah. So, did you were you out buying records when you once you started buying black music? Was that thing that you were consuming yourself separate from your older brother um,
1: yes it would have been all those wonderful old compilations like the tighten ups Mm. motown chart busters this is soul stuff like that i think the first actual album by a single artist album would have been a Jimi hendrix album so axis boulders love i think was the first one have you still got that I haven't. I haven't got any records anymore.
0: Did you? Did you sell them all off?
1: I've got a Spotify subscription, so I'm kind of happy with that, you know. Oh,
0: so you're not a a vinyl junkie you need to... Because I've still got all my vinyl. I couldn't imagine getting rid of it. I've
1: still got a couple of hundred vinyl albums, but that's it. And and the odd thing about that is, as I was writing for music magazines and whatnot... um, Record companies essentially send you anything you wanted mm-hmm. and a whole load of stuff you didn't want, and mm. you buy stuff for research purposes and this sort of stuff. Okay. And that's the stuff I got rid of all of that. And the ones, oddly enough, is a pure coincidence. When I moved eight years ago, I thought, right, I, d- I don't know why I'm carrying this stuff about with me. And that's before I moved. I got rid of loads of stuff, you know. And I realised that all the albums I was keeping was ones I'd actually bought, you know, gone out to buy. And sure. mostly before I was writing about music. So how
0: did you go from being then a music lover to someone who writes about the music? What, what, how did that happen? What's that, what's, tell me about that journey. Uh,
1: well, it wasn't so much a journey as a, a stumble or a, a coincidence. Um, it was completely by accident. I had absolutely no intention of uh, writing about anything, you know. Um, so I thought, know, well, I was 15, maybe 16, when I left school, to, you know, mm-hmm. writing. Why, why on earth would I want to do that? And um, it was me and a friend of mine, the big Funkadelic fans. Loved uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Mm-hmm. And he was a printer, my mate, and... This was before, you know, offices had their own printers and this sort of stuff. And his, where he worked as a printer, used to print stuff for um, a record company, Pi Records. So he'd print their kind of press releases and stuff like this. And he told me that George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic was going to review the singles for an issue of Blues and Soul at the Blues and Soul office. So he said, look, if we I know what time he's gonna be there. If we go up and hang about outside, maybe we can get to shake his hand. I thought, great, you know. So took the time off work, went down there. And the um car pulled up out, outside so tiny street. This is in Hanway Street, just off Oxford Street. Mm-hmm. Tiny Street. It was because blues uh Contempo Records was above blues and soul, or the
0: other way round. What year what year are we talking about now? Seventy okay. eight, probably.
1: And um so we're hanging about out there. The car turned up, um the bloke from the record company got out. Um, the in-house press officer, Tom um, Vickers, got out. And then George got out. So we went over just to shake his hand and say, great, love your music and that, you know. And he thought we were from Blues and Soul, there to sort of welcome him. Then the Blues and Soul people came down and they thought we were with George. So they invited us up and we spent the afternoon reviewing the singles with George
0: Clinton. Fantastic. <laughs> and it went
1: on, it literally went on from there, you know, because um, George and Tom, the press officer, invited us down, you know, because they were doing shows at Hammersmith, invited us down to that, and we went to one, and we went back to the hotel with them. They were staying at the Savoy, we were chatting to them for hours, you know. And um, because George had never met a couple of regular black guys in London, you know, and was really interested to find out what black life was like. Sure. You know, so we're talking to him for ages. But the bloke from Blues and Soul, there, he said, "Oh, you know, you, but, but that was really funny." It was we all went downstairs when we finished. The car came back. George, Tom, and uh, Graham, the press officer from Pi, got in the car. It went off, and the bloke from Blues, and, "Aren't you going with them?" He said, "No." But didn't you arrive uh, with them? Uh, no, uh, we just uh, met them outside.
0: Uh, 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 inadvertent blagging, that's yeah, fantastic. So, so we had a good laugh
1: about that. But the editor was actually kind of quite impressed with
0: mm-hmm. what we did and how we did it. So When you say review the music, how did that actually, what do you mean physically, how did that happen? Yeah, they, you went into the office with, with George. They Kinnison. had
1: a, like a kind of listening room. Uh, me, Chris, the guy's name was Chris, and uh, George sat in this room. Putting records on the stereo and just saying, "Well, what do you reckon on that then?" Wow! wow. And the um, there's a bloke from Blues and Souls, like, kind of making notes on it, and he didn't he didn't seem to question the fact that we were both clearly Londoners, you know. But that's it, we got away, we got away with it, and um, uh, Blues and Souls said, "Oh, look, you know, can you if you're going to meet them, can you?" If you get any news, could you tell us and all this? And it kind of literally went on from there. Did you
0: realise at the time what was happening? Did you think, hold on, this is... this, this. Not really. I was quite quite happy oh, okay. in my job.
1: You know, I kind of enjoyed what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, this was... What were you doing, by the way? I was a chef. Oh, okay. And, and uh, this was just incredible. It was just like a blag, you know, something sure. to tell my mates. Sure. And um, then um, they gave me some records to review, which... Um, ha, <laughs> This was ridiculous. This is a dream. (laughs) This is absolutely ridiculous that um, I wrote a little... I did the best I could. I mean, I realise now what I did was clearly embarrassing, right? But um, what it was, what really sold me on this as, you know, my future life was the fact they didn't want these records back. After they gave them to me to review, I couldn't believe that they were going to let me keep them. Like five albums. Oh, it was amazing.
0: Can you remember what those records were? Not got a clue. But
1: um, it was one of these things, because ever since I'd had a job, I think the largest part of my... I'm trying to remember. Did the largest part of my weekly wage go on clothes or records? But it was one of the two, you know? And the fact that someone gave me some records sure. was just incredible. I thought, oh, I'll do this for the rest of my life you know and um so I did some other
0: I did a concert review for them. That was brilliant. just so you'd never written anything before. No. and how did did it come easy to you to 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 do it? Did oh. they accept your written stuff? did they edit the life out of it? Okay.
1: I, um, I th- they accepted it because they weren't paying for it, oh, so okay. I think that had
0: a um, okay.
1: you know something to do with it. Um, I'm not sure if they edited the life out of it or not. I honestly can't remember. Um, I, it's one of these things. As a writer, it's dead easy when you start because you don't realise how bad you are, Hmm. and then you start to realise that there's certain rules you need to follow.
0: Stand-up comedy is very similar, actually.
1: Yeah. So I think it for the first little while it's dead easy, and then you realise actually. There's more to this. Then it becomes really difficult. Then you learn those rules and you work out how to work them for you. Then it becomes easy again, you know, because you know how to do it. But at that point, I was still at the "this is dead easy" bit. And um, they, it was what was hilarious was um, they phoned me up and asked me to go and do an interview for them with a, with like a, uh, an American visiting American. James Brown. <laughs> it was ludicrous. I mean, I was in this sort of press conference thing. There was three other people there, and they were all like kind of James Brown nuts, really. They'd they they kind of, they'd interviewed him before, they knew each other, and it was a sort of, there was this kind of game going on. With, they were trying to prove how much they knew about James Brown, and he was trying to sort of catch them out. And I didn't know what I was doing there. I could only vaguely understand so much of what he said anyway. And it was... Oh God, I came back and I was frantically trying to write this down because nobody told me, get a tape recorder, you know. So I'm trying to write this down. And um, I got home and managed to cobble something out of it. And... I thought, well, if I've done that, I can do anything. You know, if I've survived that, I can do anything. So, you know, um, I don't know what, 20 years later, there's base culture.
0: The book, Base Culture, was first published in 2000. How did you form the idea for doing the book, or did that develop over time? How did that come about?
1: Um penguin got in touch with me and said there's never been a narrative history of reggae written by a black man Mm -hmm. would you like to do it and penguin asked you to write a book you don't say no Mm -hmm. so i said yeah when do you want it by and i thought well i know reggae i know reggae people i've done this i've done that i understand what it is um i can make sense of this um I worked out how to tell the story. Because, um, you know, I had discussions with Penguin and I had to do a proposal before we signed any contracts and that, you know. And um, I looked at it and thought, the last thing I want to do is a list of records, you know, or um, the kind of arcane detail of who played bass on this record and, you know, what colour underpants the producer was wearing, this sort of stuff. And what I wanted to do, was reconnect reggae with the culture that created it, which I felt had been removed. It was being distanced from um, Mm -hmm. its own culture. Also, I mean, I looked at that and thought, actually, the best way to do this is to look at post-Independence Jamaica and tell that story hung on the hook of music. And then it becomes interesting because it's all about context at that point. And... The music is a result of the context. Um, I thought, okay, I know how to interview people, I know how to write, I know how to construct a story. You know, It didn't really matter that I'd never been to Jamaica before. In fact, I think that helped because I was almost naive. I was asking questions that I know other writers about reggae wouldn't have asked because it might have made them look... Not dumb, but, you know...
0: Um, for example?
1: I don't, um, it's like, if someone said to me, you could just honestly just say, well, why did you do that, you know? Oh, here's, a, here's an example of this. Okay. Horace Andy, right? Absolutely lovely bloke, you know? And I knew he was one of the Studio One singers from quite the early days.
0: Mm. So Can you I've, just explain what Studio One is? Studio
1: One, I suppose the um, the back of a fag packet way of describing it would be jamaica's motown it was the it was the record label that went through from the 60s and the rock steady days into made a successful transition from through ska rock steady into reggae as we know it and anybody who's anybody recorded at studio one studio one became in the same way as you know american kids would ask for the new motown record reggae heads would ask for the new studio 1 record there were sound systems that played nothing but studio 1 it was it had an iconic status within the world of reggae record labels and recording studios so i wanted to get to i wanted to get to find out i guess why this was the case you know So I asked Horace Andy, and he said to me, he said, well, because we had all the best singers and musicians. I said, well, I know that, but why did you have all the best singers and musicians? And he said, well, because the good singers and musicians were there, the other singers and musicians wanted to go there. And I said, yeah, that makes sense, but why were the first ones there in the first place, you know? And he said, well, because it was where the best ones went. (laughs) And we were talking circular, like this, for about a quarter of an hour. And I said, I was, I was getting not quite frustrated, but I knew this, this wasn't going to do, you know. And uh, I said, um, yeah, but there must have been a reason. There must have been a point at which there weren't the best singers and musicians there, yet they went there. Why was that? And that point he got what I was talking about, what I wanted to know. And he looked at me and he he laughed and he said Coxon was the only studio let us smoke weed in the studio.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that it's and then you realize that there is just this ridiculous um uh, series of, of accidents and, and things. You know, that what's it, this saying in Jamaica about every spoil is a style and all these things that you start looking for them then, that there's little reasons why that happened. It's like, you know, why did Prince Buster start making his own records when Coxon and this and Duke Coxon, uh, studio uh, the one, producer Studio One. Yeah, the who used to have one. a sound system, Coxon mm-hmm. uh, sound system, and Duke Reed was another big studio okay. in the Rocksteady days, and he had a
0: sound system. And so that, that's Treasure Old yeah, Studio. Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh they would import their records from uh, America. they'd go to America they'd buy r and b. This is in the days before scar
0: well can can I just interject but not don't want you to lose your flow you you, you started the book with talking about sound systems, and of course sound systems existed before Jamaica was making its own music, yeah, which is yeah. what you're talking yeah. about, isn't it I mean. Just well, can we explain what the sound system is? A lot of people, the sound system in Jamaica. W- w- what was the sound system in in the, the, the late fifties, early sixties? It
1: was, it was kind of, an area's social life would uh, revolve around the sound system. It was where people built, um, fantastic amplification and speakers and whatnot, and played these outdoor dances. Um, playing records because there was um, the kind of jazz and uh, rhythm and blues thing was going on and people couldn't afford to put on a dance with live musicians because it wasn't economically viable. So the idea was well let's have um, records and of course records weren't being made in Jamaica at that time. This is late 40s, early 50s. And so sound system operators would go to America. They'd travel to Miami, Florida, occasionally New York, or they'd get relatives to send stuff down from New York of um, American rhythm and blues and jazz. Of course, because the larger radio stations broadcasting out of the Gulf, the Gulf states, um, could be picked up in Jamaica. So there was... This music was known about, so... And um, it was the idea that so many... I mean, Coxon and, and Duke Reid, who were the biggest sound systems at the time, both had uh, drinks businesses, and really, the dances were there to sell drinks. Okay. So... That was was how it worked.
0: Can I ask you a question a bit like you were asking Leroy Sibbles? Why were they listening to American R&B? Why weren't they listening to Jamaican folk music or mento? Why weren't they listening to British pop or American? Why? why, Do you know how that developed? Yeah, because um, the radio
1: stations in Jamaica, I think there was only one at the time. Remember, Jamaica was still a British colony at Mm -hmm. that time. So essentially, it was like a sort of, Cracked version of the BBC, you know, and it played BBC music, it catered, it didn't cater to the downtown people, mm-hmm. it catered to the um, the middle classes, the upper classes, there was classical music mm-hmm. on there, you know, because it was run
0: by BBC so, Celsius, The So Sound System culture and Sound System communities was a, a, a working class thing? Yeah, a
1: working so. class yeah. thing, because there really was this sort of class divide in sure. Jamaica and the... Um, the middle classes and the upper classes were being catered for in this way. The the working classes were essentially forgotten. Make your own music, you know? Now, you asked about, you know, mento or Jamaican folk music, and it's kind of all right, but it's not that exciting, is it? You know, and the fact that... You're not
0: going to be dancing to it, are you? Not really. No. You know,
1: you're not going to put your best suit on go out on the yeah. pool to listen to um, <laughs> some mento, you know? And um, it was like... Because the radio stations from abroad could be picked up. Mm-hmm. Also, there's, um, who is it, uh, Gussie Clark. No, well, not Gussie Clark. Yeah, Gussie Clark, uh, a producer, a mm-hmm. big producer, explained this to me. He said. He said, there's this saying, well, it's all right for a Jamaican. Such was the result of years of slavery and decades of colonialism that there was a bit of a cultural inferiority complex, and the idea that something that came from America would automatically be better than something that was made in Jamaica. Mm. It wasn't really, I mean, Buster was one of the first people to Mm -hmm. really wave the flag for Jamaican-made and Jamaican-oriented music. But we we were talking about Buster himself, and I was talking about another one of these bizarre sort of things that led to something much bigger. When um, Buster built a sound system, because there was Duke Reed and Coxon, the two big sound systems, Um, he was always fiercely nationalistically Jamaican, Prince Buster. He's advanced Jamaican and Jamaican culture all the way, you know? So he's built his sound system and really didn't want to play... American music on. He felt this was rather culturally self-defeating. But he really didn't have a choice because there was no Jamaican music being made. Or, you know, contemporary music, if you like. Mm -hmm. And uh, what guys used to do to import records and equipment for sound systems, they'd go to uh, Florida to cut sugar cane because Jamaican cane cutters were the best in the world, you know, so they would get put on a boat, they go over, cut cane for a couple of weeks and come back, you know, live in dormitories on the cane fields. And, but because um, this was, you know, people would go over to cut cane and then just disappear, you know, that um, I think America must have had a, a, a word with the Jamaican government about this, that there was too much illegal immigration going through this. So what they used to do was um, potential cane cutters, before they got on a boat to go to Miami, they used to stand there, they'd have to put their hands out, palms up, and a soldier would go down and inspect their palms to see if they were seasoned cane cutters or not, you know. And so Buster's waiting in line like this, and he's got his hands out, you know, and his hands were so soft that the um, the bloke said, you have never cut cane in your (laughs) life, you're not getting on this boat. So he was stuck, he had this sound system he built, and no music, so he thought, okay, this is my chance to be Jamaican, he went up into the hills, because Bust was a man who knew everybody, you know, high breed, low breed, you know, whatever, he went up into the hills to Count Ozzy's Rasta camp, got Ozzy and some Rasta drummers, talked them into coming down, because they didn't want any part of Babylon and this and that, hired a studio, which Duke Reed hired from under him, so he had to go somewhere else, had a few musicians and created a sound that involved Aussie's drums and drummers and some R and B bottom, you know. So that was O Carolina, which essentially was the first sort of Jamaican sounding record. And it went on for What them. year is this? 61, 62, okay. around then,
0: okay. early sixties, I think. But we, but but Coxon had been making early ska type music, post R and B, what shuffle or whatever they called it. There was the transition period, yeah, I mean, where they were there were Jamaican mu- records being made, yeah. essentially but Buster well, comes with something that is definably Jamaican in its sound.
1: Coxon was, he wasn't making Jamaican music. He was making music in Jamaica, which is kind of different sure. you know and sure. he was essentially um copying american r&b he might have inverted the b at some yeah. point there were little flourishes you know sure. people like ernie Ranglin and all of that would always put their own um he was a guitarist sure. uh, would always put their own spin on it but there was nothing like this that um mm-hmm. really
0: took the jamaican people on board and they loved Do you it. You know, what the re- that, What was the response to that record? Was it a record that people responded to knowing, thinking this is something different? Yeah. This they, is ours as well? Well,
1: but yeah, because the Ozzy and his drummers were around in the ghetto in mm. West Kingston. Everybody knew who the Rastas were, who their drummers were and all of that. So when Buster plays his sound system and it's, um, uh, you know, open air, so this stuff carries, you know, and... He said, when, you know, the sound of these drummers went up into the air, he said, people came running. They'd never heard themselves on a record before. And this isn't, this is the Jamaican working classes. This is the Jamaican ghetto
0: Mm -hmm. they're hearing. And it's their music for the first time. Yeah. (laughs) The book's... The story about Jamaican music is also a story about the British experience of Jamaican Uh music. But there's also a story within that of you going to Jamaica, which we haven't talked about. And that's a story in itself, which could be a book in itself, looking at some of the, 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 the experience you had... Had you ever been to Jamaica before? Had you been going there?
1: No, I'd never it, been bef- Until I started researching sex so culture, I'd never been to Jamaica.
0: What was that like, when you were going to Jamaica for the first time? Did you go, Did you go? It, 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 was it incrementally you went, or did you go for one big long period? Were you going backwards and forwards?
1: I was, um, I was in Florida for uh, six weeks or so, you know, mm-hmm. I think school holidays with the kids, and... Um, I went to Jamaica from... flew from Miami because I was starting to do the book. So, you know, I've done... Signed Had the Penguin contract.
0: commissioned you to do yeah, the book yeah, by now? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Paid me in advance. I signed the okay. contract, you know. And um, I went over to Jamaica and this is how much I didn't know, right, that um, I arrived the afternoon of the day before a national holiday and wondered why all the shops were shut, you know, when I got up. Um, it was... It was great, actually. It really was. Um, I was there, I think, I was going from Florida. I was there for about five days, I think, right? And what absolutely amazed me was I had nothing to do on this first day. And it was pouring with rain because it was the summer, so it rains really hard, right? And uh, so I'm sitting in my hotel room picked up the phone book, started thumbing through it. Oh, Derek Harriet's in the phone book. Leroy Sibbles is in the phone book. (laughs) You know, all these people that you thought were like Mm -hmm. musical icons are in the phone book because in Kingston, they're just other Jamaicans, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I started phoning people up and was absolutely amazed at um, how well-received I was. People, you know, I think... It it was a sort of rule of mine that, you know, all you got to do is turn up, is show interest and be polite and you'll probably get to where you want to go. And that was exactly right. These people that I talked to were amazing. They were lovely because um, they'd never heard of me before. Um, I told them what I was doing and they were so pleased that someone wanted to tell their story sure. rather than... Sure the teller's interpretation of their story, that I wanted to sit down and interview them and talk to them about what they did. And they were really appreciative. I mean, there was a few funny incidents, like um, I think it was the day before I was going that I was going to see Leroy Sibbles and, um
0: Can we just explain to people who Leroy Sibbles is? Because he's quite a character in himself, isn't he? Yeah,
1: he was a, a bass player that um, was... Played on a lot of the famous Studio One stuff. In fact, a lot of famous, sort of, late sixties to late seventies Jamaican music. Leroy Sibbles played bass on. He arranged quite a lot of stuff as well, and he sung. He was in a group called the Heptones that had rock steady hits and reggae hits. So he, yeah, was a musician and a singer. He was a he was, I suppose, you could have called him Studio One's musical director during okay. that real purple patch of Studio One, and absolutely lovely bloke. So he was in the phone book. I phoned him up, and uh, the
0: whole idea that these people are just in the phone book yeah, is, is amazing. Yeah, I
1: know it amazed me, um, and I phoned him up, and he said, "Yeah, yeah," he said you can come around and talk to me. He Said, but I'm moving house, so you'll have to help me. So. I literally spent the afternoon carrying boxes with Leroy Sibbles, you know.
0: Are you interviewing as you're carrying boxes You and not we, we, <laughs> we did the boxes,
1: then we sat down, you know. But, um, you know, it was all this sort of stuff. And I think, um, I mean, Prince Buster and his missus, Mola, practically adopted me, wow. you know. And they just loved the idea that someone was going to tell the story properly. Wow,
0: you are blessed with that response, That's oh no, it really was
1: great. You know,
0: um. you know, when I was buying records uh, in the seventies, for example, and certainly up until the eighties, most of the knowledge we had, or uh, about Jamaican music, was coming. There There wasn't really any major books. It was coming from sleeve notes. It was coming from articles. Was there ever a sense? Did you have a, an academic agenda, even though you don't come from an academic background? About the l- legitimizing this story in print, as opposed to it merely being there as oral history, was that part of of your agenda, or because well, that's, that's what's that's happened, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, when Penguin asked me to write the book, there was no way I was going to say no, you know. Um, so I did it, and I wanted once I got into it, I thought, well. The only way I'm going to do this is to tell the story properly. It's not going to be a list of records, as I said earlier. It's not going to be my interpretation of what these uh, guys and women are telling me. Um, And what I'm not going to do, and was determined not to do, is attempt to prove how much I knew to start off with, because I didn't know anything. When I went there, I went with the idea... I kind of like the music, and I know who you are, but I don't know anything about why it was made, so therefore I'm going to ask you all the questions I need to know, and you're going to explain it to me, I can explain it to the reader. And then as these things... I think it was really the... From that first time, when I realised that people were so... Um, I don't say excited, but pleased that somebody was listening to them that I thought, well, this is how it needs to be told. And I I mean, again, Buster, you know, was um, a friend of mine in London had a phone number that he said, if I phoned this number, um, I, they could put me in touch with Prince Buster. So I thought, wow, Prince Buster would be like, you know, uh, the real big cheese within this book, you know. And um, so I phoned this number. And I was pretty nervous, actually, when I phoned Oh, yeah, sure. Me. And so I went through this whole spiel about um, who I am and what I was doing and what I was hoping to do and all of this. And I said, um, do you think it would be possible that I could speak to Prince Buster? And the voice on the other phone said, yes. I said, great. How do I go about this? He said, well, carry on. This is Buster. Mm-hmm. And it was <laughs> his, it was his house, you know. And um, so <laughs> we, we got talking, and he invited me down to is he lives in he lived in North Miami. I thought, well, he's an old geezer, you know, and he's um, you know, pretty proper about things. The last thing I wanna do is be late. So I drove down, I had to drive down this road, the I ninety five, in Florida, which can be a dream, but it can be really choked up. You've no idea how long it's gonna take you to get somewhere. So I thought, Well I'll I'll leave for any amount of traffic jams. And I turned up at Buster's house about an hour and a half early, at least an hour early, you know. And I thought, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's embarrassing because people don't like people to turn up too early, you know, and that. So I thought, well, I'll just leave it. I'll sit here for about, you know, I don't know, half an hour, three-quarters of an hour. Then I'll go and knock on his door. And it was too hot to sit in the car, so I just got out and sat. On the side of the road, just waiting for him. And he came out and he asked me if I was me, you know. And I said, Yeah, he said, well, what are you doing out there? I said, Well, I didn't, I was too early, you know. And he said, well, Why were you so early? I said, well, I didn't want to be late, you know. And uh,
0: he really loved that. Did the, the relationship between politics and music, which is something that you make, you spill out that relationship in the book, the material conditions, and the music that comes about because of those material conditions. That wasn't part of your agenda. Is that something that developed whilst doing the research, where you made that connection?
1: Well, I was aware of that Jamaica's so small, it's also claustrophobic, you know, mm-hmm. and having been to other Caribbean islands and realising how tight an island community is, you know, and when it's being governed, what is passed out from the government affects everybody immediately i mean you know in england you cannot like what the government does but essentially it's not going to have an immediate effect on most people you know not not so on a a small island so i always knew this was there i knew what roots reggae was you know because we've done it you know and I was, kind of, I was interested in the notions behind it. I understood it. I knew what it was. I knew how it translated into um, uh, English culture. I was broadly supportive of it. And I thought this was fascinating. What you've got here is a genuine folk music. By folk music, I mean of the folk, of the people. And this is what it was. And I quickly realised... And the thing is, this was just... Not just going to, you know, sit around some musician's house and interview him, but just going to a restaurant or a bar down the road from my hotel and talking to people, you know, having a meal and getting in conversation with people. And then you realise that everybody practically in Jamaica has a political opinion. It, it affects them so quickly and so greatly that you couldn't have... Um, a culture or a cultural expression that didn't involve how people were feeling at the time. Mm -hmm. And that, I thought, was interesting, you know? Sure. And so then you think, well, okay, you can't remove this stuff, so I've got to put it in context. And And the thing is, everybody would have something to say about it, you know? The Roots thing was interesting because the chronology of base culture starts before the Roots Era. The Roots Era happens during it, and the book kind of signs off when the Roots Era finishes. And again, it's really interesting. It's like, well, we've been independent for 10 years and nothing's happened, so therefore we're going to start making a noise about it, you know? Mm. 10 years later, it's, well, we had roots and culture for 10 years and it didn't get us anywhere, so into Yellow Man, you know? So it it was that sort of thing. But
0: it's even outside of... uh a genre of roots and culture, Jamaican music has always been able to respond very quickly to political conditions, political changes, what's happening in the news. Can
1: respond quickly to anything yeah. because that's sound system culture for you. Sure. This was something else that um what I wanted to do with base culture because I knew from my experiences that sound systems were at the core of all of this. It's not about Island Records, it's not about Bob Marley, it's not about producers, Mm -hmm. it's about sound systems. Mm -hmm. And sound systems, it's like if you have an operator who makes records as well for his sound system, unique one-off pressings for his sound system to give him an edge over the sound system two blocks away, you know, Mm -hmm. specials they call them. Mm -hmm. And um, if he's doing that, He plays music on his sound system. He watches the crowd's reaction. If they're not moved by it, he never makes another record like that again. If they love it, then he'll make half a dozen more that sound like it the next week, the same thing, right? And that is the kind of instantaneous thing. So if something is happening on Tuesday, it can be reflected in the dance because you get, you know... Um, Sound men, as producers, record records on Thursday night um, into Friday morning. Get uh, an acetate, which is a one-off disc cut on a Friday afternoon, and play it on the dance on Friday evening. So that's immediate. Mm -hmm. It's not like a series of A&R meetings. You know, so it worked. And then when... DJs came in, toasters, you know, which had always been there from the scat mm-hmm. DJs of the American R&B stations that used to be played in Jamaica. So the idea of toasters bigging up sound systems was always there, okay. you know. But then, of course, you know, you, um, they hear what's going on around them. The good toasters all told me that, you know, they'd walk through the dance, you know, or hang about in the dance before they pick the mic up. And they'd hear what people were talking about. And then they could respond to okay. that. They'd talk about it. So if, you know, there was some sort of strike and there was no cooking oil in the mm-hmm. shops, then the toaster would
0: talk sure, about that. Sure. So it was it was instant. Could you go and watch a reggae band in Jamaica or was it all sound systems?
1: No, it was it was sound systems, but mm. it was it was singers and backing musicians. Okay. It was singers. So there the
0: idea of how people see Bob Marley and the Wailers that that was a manufactured thing from were, from the, the Chris Blackwell days.
1: I think Lee Perry put the Whalers together mm-hmm. um, before um, signing with Island. Um, that they recorded a bunch of stuff with him, and I think.
0: Are the, talking about the 1970s stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, the Barrett Brothers were yeah. Lee Perry's players anyway. So the Whalers Band essentially came out of the Upsetters, okay. or who Lee Perry's studio sure, band was. Sure. But the idea was to... Blackwell wanted to do it with Jimmy Cliff, largely because of the success of Harder They Come. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Cliff was a global star at that point. But Jimmy Cliff also was very aware of where he stood in relation to the rock audience, the mm-hmm. pop audience, what he could do. And it was he was Blackwell's first choice for this kind of almost a bold experiment, you know? And he he turned it down. So Marley came about almost by accident and Marley was shrewd enough to sort of ride that train till the wheels fell off.
0: How do we see that influence now, the the Bob Marley and the Wailers influence it somehow dominated some people's experience of Jamaican music, is not it?
1: Yeah. I've got nothing against the Wailers. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I loved the Whalers when it was Peter, Bob and Bunny. Mm-hmm. I wasn't so much keen after Peter and Bunny had left. I don't think... I think it suffered. What they did wasn't nearly as creative as what it was before. But sure. that's a whole other discussion, course, right? Yeah. But... Um, I think what it was, was people would convince themselves that buying, you know, Exodus or something was this route into reggae. And I always said, no, it's more of a, a blind alley. It's a block turning because people would say, well, I've got a bit of reggae. Whereas it wouldn't necessarily put people off investigating like Burning Spear or Big mm-hmm. Youth or something, the Mighty Diamonds, right? A lot of people felt they didn't need to. It's like, I've got my reggae. I've done my bit for the sure. cause.
0: So you don't see it as a bridge whereby people, first, as they're young, they hear Bob Marley and the Welles and then they go, oh, hold on. This has introduced me to a music but there's more to it than this. No. I don't you don't see it? that Because that's a, an argument, isn't not, it? About yeah. That
1: um, not in significant sure. numbers. Sure. I think most people that arrive at reggae arrive at reggae mm. and they arrive at it as a whole. It's mm. not... You know, um, yeah, I, I don't think it makes you look for other. It makes people who weren't arriving at it almost naturally. It's like the way Bob Marley and the Wailers were presented was in this kind of. Um, it's tailor made. It's it's right. Okay, we got this bloke out front. Um, it's a group. Rock fans can understand that. I'll oh, give him a guitar. Yeah, they know about that. You know. Oh, and have him shake his locks like, um, you know, uh, a a rock band would, you know? I'm not saying that this is what happened, but this is how it appears. The psychology is there, right? It was very easy for um, a rock crowd to grab onto Bob Marley. Also, I mean, he was a hippie, essentially. I mean, there was was hardly any difference between Rasta and hippie when you look at it. Look, peace and love, loads of weed, Right. (laughs)
0: You know, that's kind of it, really. But it's the it's the Bob Marley image. Yeah, it's that legacy that actually uh, is, is around the world, isn't it? Yeah, it's it not is. the dancehall legacy so much. No, it's if not. If you go to Africa, for example, if you go to Gambia, if you go to Cape Town, the legacy is yes. a roots and culture type. Well, Marliesque roots and culture, but
1: it's not even Marliesque, It's Marley. Okay. It's like. What I found really interesting, right, is the amount of hardcore reggae fans I know. Are not They're not people that even take reggae particularly seriously. They just love it. They've mm-hmm. got reggae records, right, you know? They've got a picture of Bob Marley, but they haven't got any of his records. Right. It's what you're talking about, you know, the image of Bob Marley around the world. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's the ima- It's sure. what... It's a bit like Nelson Mandela. What does Nelson Mandela stand for? What does Muhammad Ali stand for? You know, I mean, you know, he hadn't done boxing for years when he died, but he still was this icon. Yes. Mali is this same icon.
0: There's, there's lots of legacies of Jamaican music. There's... Um, And sound system culture. And the one that interests me is, certainly in this country, the musical legacy is not people listening to Bob Marley. It's music that's made in Britain. So I'm thinking of, first of all, we had British reggae. Then that developed into, we had drum and bass, dance music. How do you see that, that relationship between Jamaican music
1: it's Jamaican music culture that, imit- that uh, inspired it and um, moved it forward, rather than specifically Jamaican music. It's, what it was, was sound system DIY culture. It's been present in black British music for a long time, but sound systems really showed how to do it. The idea that um, the Lovers Rock label could sell 100,000 of a record with no chart promotion, no media, like purely on sound systems, a bit of pirate radio, and word of mouth, right? Showed how it could be done. Um, this went on, I mean, uh, the real fulcrum here, if you like, was Jazzy B and Soul to Soul, because he came straight out of a sound system culture. His older brothers have all got sound systems. And he grew up with it. He worked out how to take the underground, overground, but remain in charge of it in the way that sound systems did. Run your own business, make your own music, publicise it on the sound system, build up the buzz like that. Then when I was writing Sounds Like London and I was talking to the grime kids, the junglists, the dubsteppers, more than half of them said, when we saw Jazzy B do it, we knew we could do it. Because those kids, you know... The Jungle ones particularly, I and mean, Jungle is a really under-reported or underrated music. It was massive in London, Jungle. Yeah. Massive, yeah. you know? And then you've got the Grime Kids, and they looked at it, and they thought, well, why on earth do we need to go to the mainstream with this? We've got the internet, we've got pirate radio, we've watched sound systems run their business, put... Records out, get them pressed up themselves, distribute themselves out of the boots of their cars, this sort of stuff. We can do this too. Mm-hmm. So before Dizzy won the Mercury, Grime had been around for like 12 years before that. And it was huge. And it had, people had been making a good living out of it. And what it was, again, you look at so many of those original Grime kids, they all had dads or older brothers or uncles or in some cases mothers or aunts that were in sound systems. They knew how to do it um, independently without involving the mainstream media or the mainstream record business. They didn't need them. And it was—it really was, you know, um, just incredible. And what that allowed it to do was, which is the same as happened with reggae, was it allowed it to develop away from the demands of a mainstream music business, which will always be risk-averse. It will always say, ah, well, don't really put that amount of bass in because the kids in Swindon probably won't get into that, you know. But these young kids, 17 year say, yeah, put turn the bass up. they love that in Swindon, you know. So it worked like that. And again, this sound system thing, you're that far, you know, a metre away from your crowd you know what they want, because if you get it wrong, they'll tell you about it, you know? So it evolved. It, it evolved for its own crowd. It was That's why it's so huge, because people... It's like the general public are far more robust than cultural gatekeepers will give them credit for. If they want to hear reggae, they want to hear the real thing. This is why underground roots reggae did so well you know and yet you're trying to package this stuff up to make it like this to turn it into this and yeah that's not really it you know
0: there's there's something i wonder if you could explain something for me that, that puzzles me and it's the popularity of two things of jamaican music from the 60s and 70s in europe i noticed your book is sold in spain italy I can't understand how that's developed in countries that don't have that colonial relationship in the same way that Britain did. I can totally understand how the popularity of reggae in Britain. I can't quite understand. And when I watch, go on YouTube and watch Sound Systems in on Holland, it's all white kids. They're not even smoking weed. They look quite straight and clean and healthy. But it's like they're at a rave, and I can't get my head around that juxtaposition. And also, there's a whole market of modern-made roots and culture music, isn't there? How has that developed? Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, it's seen... I mean, this is probably a hangover. There's two things at work here. One um, was the same way grind developed and dubstep and jungle developed as an underground culture. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you put on an underground dance, right? You can't hire out, you know, a, a, a nightclub. You can't do this. You do it in a squat with a sound system, you know, and that's the way to do it. It was like the sound system model was taken. Because um, I did, um, when uh, the Italian uh, translation of Bass Culture came out, uh, the publisher down there took me on tour of Italy, to, and it was different sound systems in, you know, Rome, Milan, Napoli, uh, a couple of other places, I can't remember. But, um, you know, it was this kind of left-wing, rebel, right, we can do what we do away from the mainstream. We can do it totally unsupervised, you know? Sound systems are already doing this. It was quite an easy thing to take on. They didn't have to think about it. We're just we'll get a sound system in, you know.
0: But they're making music, unlike dubstep or grime, they're making music that replicates mid-1970s Jamaican music, aren't they? That's what I don't understand. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, if you
1: ever listen to sort of continental pop music...
0: You know. sure. So almost anything <laughs> is going to sound
1: better. <laughs> Tell me, you know. Okay. But, but it's also, it's an association thing, isn't it? I mean, mm. there is this whole thing that, you know, reggae is rebel music, so yeah. therefore... We're like the you know, the left wing, um, independent cultural uh wing okay. of the Italian youngsters or whatever, mm. we're going to play reggae because again, it's the symbolism of Bob sure. Marley, like the symbolism of Nelson Mandela, you know. Sure. And reggae lends itself to that, you know. Okay. Also, I mean, it's actually pretty good, you know, if you go to a
0: dance but, Yeah. During the first lockdown I was lucky enough to get a little run on Conscious FM which is a a reggae radio station. Thursday night revival. I called it reggae history. Um, And as I was sorting through my records I was also going online because somebody sold me all of these records are worth lots of money. And I was totally shocked. I was putting out handfuls of 7 inches and putting them in and that's 50 quid, that's 200 quid, that's 400 quid. There's a kind of Fetishization of vinyl 7-inch. How how was that happen? what, what I, I can't even get my head around that as well. Do you know the worst thing about all of that is when... You got rid of your records before that happened? Well, no, no, no. <laughs> when
1: you finally shuffle off this uh, mortal coil, they'll end up in a skip because your kids won't...
0: Well, I know. Yeah, Uh, yeah. and that's the worst thing of That's So
1: depressing, you
0: know. Yeah, my son. Oh, two (laughs) thousand quid now.
1: It's going to be in a skip in twenty years' time. But I mean, this is something that you you said you said it quite interestingly. Um, This is something that I wanted base culture to fight against. If you like, I wanted to put the music back into the context of where it came from and. Deliver the people that made it as people rather than as records. Because I always feel that. I mean, if occasionally I get into these pissing contests with, um, you know, uh, reggae heads who say, oh, have you got such-and-such of the such-and-such version? And I just answer them all, no, I haven't got any records. And they say, oh, I thought you've had loads of records. No, I haven't. I haven't got any. Because I can't get into these things because... My real problem here is by putting this sort of value and creating this, and I think you said fetishizing was mm, that what you mm, said right yeah it does so much to remove the music from the culture that sure. created it and creates ownership it's like mm. i'm more I'm more of reggae than you mm. because I've got more records than you. This is why I always say I've got no records, okay. but I still wrote bass culture sure. so it's I just think it's It's not a contest about records. And if you do that, you're looking at it from the wrong way. You're looking at the finished product. The finished product is great. It's why we're all here. But it's the finished product. The process itself, that's where the real interest is. And I think people will deliberately ignore that because they have no control over it. However, if someone can, you know, sort of impress you by telling you, I've got... 20,000 quid's worth of reggae records, you know. Sure. It's it's put it into, it's created a category, if you like, and a, um, a scale for it that, sure. that I think I, I disagree
0: with. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it, this is a beautiful place to finish, but before you go, have you got any favourites? Have you got any favourite LPs, favourite singles? Is there anything you go, yeah. I mean, if someone was to ask me that question, go, Lee Perry... All day long, up until 1978, almost everything he did. I worship him. Have you got any favorites like I that? I
1: suppose I'd say Super Ape. Is yep. one. Super Ape, uh, then um, there's a Pablo album that is uh, East of the River. River now, yeah. Yes. Yep. And, the tracks that go with that, it's like there's a T-track album that goes yeah. with that. You Let's know.
0: get started. That's it, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. one. And Well, they're around the same period as yeah. well, aren't they, those yeah. two? two um, and that's a brilliant period. Yeah, Good choice. Super Ape's a great choice. Yeah, that's think, an LP I recommend to people that don't know reggae. Okay. Yeah, well, I think, yeah,
1: that. Super Ape. And um, there's a couple of Jackie Me Too albums that are absolutely brilliant and uh, uh, quite a late Rico album. Um not Man from Warika, although that's really good. Roots to the Bone. That's okay. it. Rico, Roots. To, I think that was
0: recorded in London.
1: Okay. Excellent.
0: Oh, excellent. So uh hey, Lloyd Bradley, you're a legend. Oh. Lloyd Bradley, the author of Bass Culture when Reggae Was King. Uh thank you so much for coming in. Where's it going, Lloyd? Where's it? Where's the next stage after Grime? Can you can you anticipate where it's going? No. The influence of no, reggae? Is is
1: I, f- I actually haven't got a clue oh, where it's right, going. Okay. And I'm not supposed to have
0: either. I okay, love that.
1: The, you know, the sound systems, when I said it was Jamaican cultural mm-hmm. influence, the sound systems has given these kids that the idea of the sound system, the mentality mm-hmm. of doing it themselves, has given these kids the idea to do exactly what they want. Right, and they have done. Because... Okay. If you attempted to explain grime to anybody 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, they'd laugh at you, you know? But no, it's what they came up with, and they will come up with the next thing. And what I'm so excited about is they have the means to do it Mm -hmm. because sound systems have taught them that they can.
0: Lloyd Bradley, thanks very much. This podcast was hosted by me, Jeff Innocent. It was produced and edited by Sam Picconi. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow me on social media at Jeff Innocent Official on Instagram and Innocent Jeff on Twitter. See you next time for another episode of Smart Casual.